Welcome to Click, Treat, Repeat. This is a horse-focused podcast discussing positive reinforcement training, equine management and welfare, and other horse-related topics. So let's get started. Today we're going to be continuing our discussion of whether competition can be ethical, and I think we're going to try to focus specifically on like different types of equipment, and I found some information about like certain practices more specifically that are unethical. Saddle fit is really important, especially if you're showing your horse is like super active and you're on them a lot. They need to have a saddle that fits appropriately. They need to anyways, regardless. But in that situation, especially, I think that's even more important. Yeah, that's so true, because especially when you're competing at like really high levels, you don't want to have a saddle that's not fitting or really any tech that's not fitting. Even bridles should be fitted really well. And I think also a lot of people see saddle fit as kind of something you do like when you can and if you can't it's fine and that's just really not a good way of seeing it because if we're going to be asking horses to do this work for us and compete at high levels especially we should be making sure that their tack is fitting them properly I mean people make this comparison a lot but it's like if you have somebody who is like a star track runner and you don't have shoes that fit them obviously that's not going to set them up for success and it's going to lead to some major issues down the road. Yeah, definitely. And aren't you supposed to technically fit your saddle like every six months or something like that? It's pretty frequent. Yeah. yeah and I think that is another element because I think a lot of people think that once you get it fitted once, it fits them. But it's like the horse is actually going to change over time as their fitness level changes and their body just changes in general. Like, I don't know. I mean, I can't wear the same clothes that I wore like, you know, a few years ago because my body's changed and like living things are changing. So obviously, that's something to take into consideration too. And for horses that are competing, they are athletes. So their bodies are probably constantly changing, especially if they're actively showing versus if they've maybe had a couple months off, there's going to be a big difference in their body condition and shape. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think another issue kind of like we got into this in the last episode is like with finding like a professional saddle fitter, it can be really hard to do that because you want to trust everybody who, you know, says that they're a professional. But I think there are a lot of saddle fitters out there, unfortunately, who don't know what they're doing to the highest standard that we would hope they do. And so they may just also be selling a certain product like, oh, you know, buy our brand saddle or buy this special corrective saddle pad that I make or whatever. And so I think that's an issue too, is finding like the right saddle fitter. I know for my state, there's one for sure that I know of. I've never worked with them or anything, so I don't know what their skill set really is and where their level of knowledge is. But that's one of the reasons I don't ride that much because I don't have a saddle that will fit either of my horses. It's not something that is worth risking to me. I think that should be more common too. If you can't fit your saddle, you shouldn't be riding. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I had a saddle fitter out once to look at my saddle for Coco, and I have no idea if she knew what she was doing, honestly. Like, she was very nice. I hope she knew what she was doing, and, you know, I would like to think that she did, but I don't know much about saddle fit, which is obviously why I had a professional out. So, you know, that that's hard, too, if you have no idea. You just don't know. But I really respect that you kind of, like, have made that choice to not ride if you don't have a good fitting saddle and I think you know more people should be making that choice but I think you hear a lot of people having the excuse of like oh I train a lot of different horses or I ride a lot of different horses so it's not I I just can't get a saddle that's going to fit every single horse and I feel like 
that's just kind of a problem with the industry overall. Like we shouldn't be dealing with horses in a way that we can't get the proper equipment for them. And I think some of these like, you know, mass training programs where horses are just kind of going through, you know, for 30 days or so, and then they're getting sold. Um, that makes it really hard to, you know, have proper fitting tack. And then that's not fair on the horse. But then it also brings up the question of like, what's the alternative? Because a lot of those horses, like the way that they are able to find a good loving home is because they're able to get, you know, those 30 days of training. And if they couldn't go to that training, they might not be as marketable. And if they're not as marketable, they might not end up finding a good home. So I think it's just like a tough situation there. But in terms of competition, those people definitely should have the resources, the people that are competing at like a really high level, like the Olympics and, you know, things like that, that are usually pretty wealthy and or sponsored by wealthy people. They should have the resources to have proper saddle fit. Yeah, especially really high levels like Olympic and stuff. Those people, I'm sure, have enough sponsorships and things like that to be able to afford having a saddle fitter out as often as needed. Yeah, and they already, I'm sure, have extremely expensive tax. So, you know, if they have to get a certain saddle, then that shouldn't be that hard. I think it's just overlooked by so many people. They don't see it as such a big issue. They just kind of see it as like, oh, you know, maybe get this done once in a while, maybe, or just once when you get the saddle and then it's done. But I feel like when I look at competition horses, like competing, I pretty much am always seeing some type of like stress or pain in their body language and expression. And, you know, you have to think a lot of that probably is related to saddle fit among other things, obviously. For sure. And also the saddle has to fit the person. So not related to competition, but with the like training program things you were talking about, that's hard too, because maybe there's multiple trainers in a facility and they're all using the same saddle on the same horse, but what if they're all shaped different? Like no one's going to fit the same saddle. That's another aspect of saddle fit that's really complicated because it's not just the horse that has to fit the saddle. You do too. Yeah, that's a really good point. And if, I mean, for your own comfort and your own health, it should fit you. And then also if you're not balanced and you're not being fit properly for that saddle, then it's going to have an impact on the horse too, even if, you know, otherwise the saddle fits them well. I don't know much about bridle fit, but that's important too. Yeah, for sure. I don't know much about it either, but I do know I always love to share this information whenever I can. The bit, if you use a bit, should have zero to one wrinkles maximum. You should not be out here having a bit that is, you know, having two, three, four plus wrinkles. I mean, if you're getting up to like four, that's just like, what the heck can that even happen? But <laughs> like, you shouldn't be having many wrinkles at all, if any. I think when I was using a bit and whatnot, like several years ago, I would always think like maybe like two wrinkles or whatever. I don't know why. Maybe just someone told me that, but no, it is zero to one. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely good to share because when I was riding saddlebreds, it was like the bit was so far back and so tight that they had like a whole smile going on, not just wrinkles anymore. And oh, that's not something that should be happening, but it just, it was too much. <laughs> Yeah, that's not great at all. And I'm sure that is very common as well. Yeah, I wish I knew more about bridal fit to be able to share that. Maybe we should find somebody who knows about bridal fit and get them to like come on the podcast. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. I know it's pretty common for people to have their nose bands way too low, but that's really the only thing I know about at all. Oh, yeah, that's definitely common. Even with halters, too. I see a lot of people having their halters way too low. And when I was doing 
lessons, sort of like natural horsemanship type lessons, which um, obviously that's not the type of training that I do now. But the one thing that she was very clear on was the halter has to be positioned correctly to where it's not going to be, you know, messing with their breathing or hurting their nose lower down, things like that. So that was really good that she was very, you know, on top of that, especially because she did use rope halters and rope halters definitely have, you know, stronger pressure points in certain places. And so you don't want, especially with those, you don't want to be having them put a lot of pressure on the wrong spot. And then there's also just tack that intentionally does that, which is a whole other story. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) There's so much bad tack out there. If you Google just like terrible bits, there's so many like horrible things that will come up and uh, I don't even know about all of those like flash nose bands and all those things. Like I wish I could sit here and like explain why they're bad, but thankfully I don't even know because like I just have never had an interest in, you know, using that type of equipment. I think the worst I've used is just a double bridle, which isn't the worst thing out there, that's for sure. Yeah, that's probably better than a lot of people can say, but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was looking at a um, blog post done by Shelby Dennis, Milestone Equestrian, and she was talking about some of the different strategies and like horrible equipment that people used to get their horses to do things that she had either seen or heard people, you know, come to her and tell her about. And like a lot of stuff that she talked about was just crazy, like A lot of the stuff was kind of related to stuff we talked about before with that guy who recently got in trouble for hitting his, having someone hit his horse in the legs as it was jumping. Um, And apparently I found out after we filmed the last episode that it was actually, I think some people do that with a pole with like spikes on it, or they have the um, jump be like a pole with spikes on it. So if the horse hits their leg on it, then they're going to, you know, have even more pain than just hitting a normal pole, which is just like, I don't understand how anybody can do that and think that that's okay. Yeah, I have no clue. There's so many horrible things out there, like soaring horses. Like That's another thing that's really common that I can't imagine doing that to a horse and just thinking it's okay. Oh my goodness. I mean, I know like, especially just with jumping like there's just I don't know so many things that people will do and I know some people will drug the horses and possibly not even like the people who are dealing with the horses don't even know about it like Shelby was also talking about in her post like somebody who um was told that they were giving the horse butte but they were actually giving the horse ace which is like a you know drug to kind of calm them and things like that, where maybe the people don't even know exactly what they're doing is so bad because like it's kind of hidden. Yeah, and people get away with that too, which is terrible. It's pretty crazy. I I heard too from Shelby's post that some people will intentionally like remove water from the horses to get them to be like lethargic before they have to do a certain like exercise so that they're not overly like amped up and yeah, I just think that that's awful. Like, I don't even know what to say. It's just like, how do you do that to an animal that you supposedly love? Yeah, it's really complicated. I don't know why the horse world is so far behind everyone else in animal behavior. It's just insane. There are dog trainers that will also withhold water too, though. So it happens in other places too, which is terrible. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I never have even heard of that happening in the dog world, but I guess I can't say I'm surprised because I feel like there are terrible trainers with like every animal, unfortunately. 
I don't know why more people aren't following people who are actually professionals studying in the field. Like Raquel Dreisma is actually out there looking at animals' emotions. And there's kind of some debate on whether or not her study's true because it's just her, but I think it's good information. People aren't listening to her, but she has a whole book talking about how horses are communicating. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely should be taken seriously. And I think there is a lot of overlap from that book, too, with what we know about dog communication and other animal communication. It's not just like she made up all these things and was like, oh, these are random things that I think like she really did a deep study on these things. And it has some overlap with like how other animals communicate. And there's a lot of factors that make it credible. And that's why a lot of people in the positive reinforcement community find it so useful and recommend it so often and obviously we're always learning about communication so I'm sure things will come up that's like you know maybe the book didn't exactly get a certain thing right but that's okay because right now this is what we have and this is what we're learning from and whenever that new information comes out we can learn from that and that doesn't mean that you know her work was bad it just means that we're continuing on this process of like learning more about how horses communicate. Yeah for sure and I think Keeping an open mind is one thing that doesn't happen a lot in competition is people just, they think if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. That kind of idea, that mindset, but there's a lot wrong in traditional training. There are people that do it better. There's people that are way more humane, but just in general, umbrella term, there's a lot that's wrong in there. Yeah, that's so true. And I think a lot of the whole like if it's not broke don't fix it thing is like they just don't see that it is because there are all these signs of the horse communicating through body language and you know things like that that something's wrong but so many people just don't have that knowledge of what you know a horse's communication really looks like and I know people near me who are professional trainers or who have goals of being professional trainers that whenever I see their pictures, I always see their horses, you know, making a classic pain face looking, you know, really stressed and really in pain. And obviously, like one picture isn't, you know, that the end all be all of like, this is, you know, meaning this person's training is bad. But when you see it in every single picture, and the person doesn't seem to be taking any action to like address that the horses are clearly having a problem, then it's just like, it's horrible. And I think they just I think they genuinely don't know. And I made a tweet about this, like maybe a month ago or a few weeks ago, where I was talking about how crazy it is to me that so many, you know, supposed professionals just genuinely don't see that their horses are in pain. And a lot of people responded to me saying that they think they do see and they just don't care. But I honestly disagree with that. I think there's a little bit of that, like people who do see it and don't care. But I think for the most part, they just genuinely can't see it because they've been taught like ears back means they're angry. And other than that, they're fine. And they just never get that education to really look for it. I definitely agree with that because I was there before too, where I just thought, oh, the horse is being sassy. I have to do this to get them to do the behavior. Like I wasn't thinking, oh, maybe the horse is in pain. I was just listening to what my instructor said and going off of that. And I think that's where a lot of people stay. I don't think they deliberately are hurting the horses or causing them stress or being scary to, towards them. I think it's just genuinely not knowing, like you said. Yeah. And I know that I had to do a lot of intentional work of like looking at pictures of 
horses that, you know, were showing pain face and things like that and looking at horses in person and really paying attention to their subtle communication signs like that took a lot of practice. It's not something that you can just kind of I don't personally, I don't think it's something that you can just learn from being around horses unless you're really, really focused on, you know, what they're, what they're trying to communicate. And you're really in this mindset of like listening to them. I think for the most part, no matter how long you're around horses, if you're in the mindset of like, you know, I'm coming here to do a job and ride them, you're never going to pick up on those things. Even if you are an expert that's been working with horses for 30, 40 years, I feel like it does take some intentional listening and often research. And so people just don't really do that. And they just think because I've been around horses for 30 years, I know, but clearly not. Because when I see like a lot of their pictures and videos and whatnot, I'm like, you, you know, you're clearly overlooking what your horse is is trying to communicate and it's just really unfortunate that that is so common. Yeah, for sure. A lot of the trainers in my area that I know of will brag about how long they've been working with horses or just being with them unprofessionally, just like maybe they've grown up with horses or whatever, but usually the people that have been in the industry for 40 and up years are the ones that are kind of stuck in the old traditions and usually also not very willing to learn. Yeah, that's definitely a really good point. And I feel like I keep seeing, I don't even know, like businesses or things like that, that are literally focused on the horse being calm. And I look at the picture that they're, you know, choosing to share as their marketing of the calm horse. And it's just like a really stressed or pained looking horse with like a really, you know, significant triangle eye and a lot of tension in the face and wide nostrils. And I'm just like, oh, you couldn't, like, you couldn't pick a better picture. Like, uh. <laughs> Yeah, the triangle eyes are the thing I see the most, I think. Probably me too. And there's a lot more subtle things too that I think, going back to like having to intentionally train yourself to see these things, a lot of the more subtle signals happen really quickly and then they're over. Like a tail swish, you might mistake it for like them swatting a fly or something. Or like maybe they pin their ears, but it's super brief. The facial tension, you're not going to notice that unless you're looking for it. And there's a lot of things that I think are way less obvious that even someone who does do positive reinforcement could totally miss those too. Yeah, it's just very hard to recognize those things if you're not really looking for them. And yeah, there's really no other way to get around that other than to do practice with, you know, even just pull up Instagram or pull up Google and search for horses, just like on a hashtag or just search on Google and look at the pictures and see what you can tell from them. And then also look at diagrams that are actually showing you what expression the horse is showing to try to help out with kind of training your brain to recognize those things. Because I, I don't think we naturally, you know, are able to recognize that because we communicate so differently from them. Yeah, definitely. I can't remember who said it, but I read in a book or in a course or something a while back, someone said to watch a video of someone training a horse and then watch it again muted. And then you might be able to pick up on their body language better because you're not distracted by the voiceover or the pretty music and you can just focus on the horse and then you can start to actually see what's going on. Yeah, that's a good point. I've also heard that in also like when choosing a trainer I've heard that because a lot of the time people use so many like euphemisms with what they're doing like oh I'm just asking him to move forward or whatever while they're like swinging the whip at the horse and it's like if you're not listening to those like euphemisms then you see it more for what it really is. 
I think I need to do that more myself so I can watch. I mean, I don't really watch a lot of training videos besides positive reinforcement, and it's because it's hard to, but I think I need to just to continue learning about their body language without hearing whatever trainer saying things that don't actually make sense. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that definitely happens way too much. I mean, it's just, it is hard because they can't talk. So we could, we kind of just have to think whatever we think. And I, you know, I bet some of the things that I think aren't totally accurate to how the horse is actually communicating, but you know, at least I'm putting in the work and trying to learn more and develop my understanding of it. So I think that's really the best we can do. We may never have like a perfect understanding of them. I mean, I'm sure we never will, but we're just trying to be a little bit better. That's kind of the fun of it, but it also makes it really frustrating at times. Yeah. I guess this is kind of like going back to something we already talked about a while ago, but in both in terms of like people genuinely not knowing that they're hurting their horse and also issues with bits. Um, I found a study that was talking about, especially with cross country, basically what they did is in 2018 and 2019, they looked at 208 horses in Finland that had just completed a cross country course. And these people, you know, voluntarily allowed their horses to be looked at. And um, 95% of the people in the competitions did agree. So this was like, you know, a vast majority of the people in the competition. And they anyways examined the horse's mouths where the bit was and 52% of the horses had oral lesions from the bit. So that is over half of the horses had an oral lesion. 22% were mild, 26% were moderate, 4% were severe. Um, And Bruises were found in 39% of the horses and um, bit thickness in type was a big factor that would increase the risk of injury. And yeah, so I think it's just crazy that we can look at this data and see that, you know, over half of these horses in a cross country competition had oral lesions. Like that is just a crazy amount. And, you know, I, I bet that a lot of people's horses are having these lesions and they're maybe just not knowing because it's not necessarily going to be to the extent of like blood pouring out of their mouth. It could just be a small cut that you wouldn't really notice unless you're doing, you know, a, a thorough examination, but that doesn't mean it's not painful for the horse. I mean, I know whenever I have a little cut in my mouth, it's really painful and it's like, you know, it's very uncomfortable for them. And I don't think it's something that anybody would want to knowingly put their horse through. So I think, knowing data like this about how these kind of like high speed and difficult events like cross country and the use of bits can kind of lead to these injuries. I think that's like a very important element of competition that should be looked at. And we should be looking more closely at like the small injuries that could be happening as well, because even though it's not like a broken leg or, you know, a huge, you know, wound, it's still hurting them and it's still serious. Yeah, I'm curious what bits each of those riders were using because I'm sure that makes a difference too because there are some pretty harsh bits but there's also like the hot dog bits that are just rubber like that's probably not going to do as much. So that's interesting. And I wonder if they have that information out there. It also makes me wonder too because you mentioned the bruising in the mouth but if they're bruised in other places, you might not even see it because they have so much hair. So if you're using spurs you might not notice a bruise because again, they have hair or if the nose band's too tight, you're not going to notice anything there. There's so many things that 
could easily go unnoticed and they do because it's not broken legs that affect their career. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I also saw another study a while ago that I don't have the data from, but it was talking about the use of spurs and it was measuring, you know, what percent of the spurs had either hair or blood on them. And it, it was, you know, I don't think it was as high as 50%, you know, had blood on them or whatever, but it was still shocking that like there is a significant percent that could have blood on them. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if you look at your horse's side, you're going to see a big wound. Like there's probably not anything visible there, maybe deep under the hair, but you know, in most cases you're not going to see anything, but there's still a trace amount of blood on the spur, which means that, you know, it did hurt them. And like we talked about before, they have a very thin epidermis, which is the outer layer of the skin. So they can really feel things extremely well. And so, you know, that's going to be very painful for them. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Click, Treat, Repeat. Feel free to check us out on Instagram at Click, Treat, Repeat pod. You can find Jen at Genuine Equine and myself at Bonafide.bt. We upload new episodes every Monday and hope to see you then. Happy training.